Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. To earn a Ph.D., you not only have to show mastery of existing knowledge in your field, you have to do original research that generates new knowledge. To do this, many candidates seek obscure topics or no one else has looked before. But almost 10 years ago, a graduate student in biomedical engineering at Duke University took on a very well-known historical question. What happened to the crew of the rebel submarine Hunley after they launched the first successful underwater attack in history and were never seen alive again? What she found is told in the book, In the Waves, My Quest to Solve the Mystery of a Civil War Submarine by Rachel Lance. We'll talk with Dr. Lance tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P R O K O P. O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex, the Quarantine Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not from the campus of East Carolina University, not from the Brewster Building where the History Department is quartered, but uh, even though not there, still also not speaking for ECU or any other university. My guest likewise will speak only for herself, not for any other institution as we always do here. I'm also not speaking for the Pitt County Board of Commissioners, but I will share with you the uh, 
results of the meeting that the Board of Commissioners held on Monday of this week, as I promised to do last week. Uh, on the agenda was the disposition of the Confederate monument on the courthouse lawn that was placed there in 1914 and has since become the focus of a lot of community opposition. It was quite an interesting meeting. It was held virtually as uh, things are being done. The, the number of cases is coronavirus is still rising here in North Carolina, so we're still taking uh, precautions. So uh, the commissioners, uh, one or two of them were in the commission meeting room and the rest were in their own homes meeting uh, by Zoom or telephone or other mechanism. And those of us who were invited or who uh, signed ourselves up to make comments in the public comment period likewise did that from home. I'll start with the outcome. No need to string out the suspense. The uh, Board of Commissioners voted 7-2 to two in favor of immediate removal of the Confederate memorial from the courthouse lawn. The that was not the first thing on the agenda, but public comments were near the start, so those of us who wanted to say something could do that and then leave if we chose. I signed up uh, early enough in the, the day to go fairly early in the list of commenters, and there were quite a few, maybe 20 of us. Uh, so I uh, did not advance any arguments as to why the monument should not be there. I'd already written those to the commissioners uh, separately, and you've already heard me say it enough times, so I'll, I'll skip that. But I was able to use my three minutes uh, allotted to list five counter-arguments that I was pretty sure the commissioners would hear, uh, and in fact did hear, and why those arguments are wrong. Uh, if you're keeping score, uh, the five arguments, uh, number one, you're tearing down history, which of course mistakes symbols of history for history itself and in any case doesn't apply very well to the Pitt County Monument because it's not very good history. It only tells part of the story. Uh, there's the slippery slope argument, which is the last refuge of people who are losing an argument because it can be used anywhere. There's the black Confederate argument that the monument isn't racist because it applies to black Confederates too. And anybody listening to this show has already heard Kevin Levin and others uh, very decisively dispatch the, the mythical black confederate uh, argument. There's the only a symbol argument, won't do any good, uh, which, true, it won't uh, won't cure things overnight. I, I didn't say this uh, Monday, but it reminded me of the time I heard someone say, if you change a name, it's like putting a Band-Aid on cancer. And my reply would be, if your friend has cancer and they're bleeding, you're not going to give them a Band-Aid? Uh, at least give it to them. And finally, uh, the argument that uh, changing a monument won't change the past. Uh, history is already there. What's done is done. And of course, that is true. But the goal is not to change the past. It's to change the future. And so sure enough, the comments continued on. And a number of people who wanted to keep the memorial made exactly some of those arguments. Uh, with, uh, but uh, it was you know, pre-rebutted. It saved everybody's time. Uh, I learned a lot of things uh, from the people who argued in favor of the memorial, uh, for example, that the Confederacy was not about slavery, uh, that there was no conscription in the Confederacy was one of the arguments I heard, um, which was interesting to, to learn. Uh, and of course, the argument that there were in fact many black soldiers fighting for Southern freedom against Yankee tyranny. It was also interesting to hear some uh, 
passionate uh, comments from those who opposed the monument, African-American residents of Pitt County talking about the pain that they felt uh, seeing that monument every day or having to explain to their children why this uh, person who dates back to a, a, a war about slavery was, was there or the, the, the unease one feels going into a building seeking justice in the courthouse when there's a Confederate looming over the front door. And immediately following those kinds of comments, hearing uh, someone supporting a monument say, uh, literally, that monument has never bothered anyone. Right after three people explained how much it bothered them. Uh, and finally, I learned most interestingly uh, from one speaker that the South has never had a race problem until Yankees started moving down here. So I, I guess it's all on me. Uh, sorry about that. Well, the way things stand now, the uh, monument will be removed. The county is seeking bids for uh, companies to come and move it into storage pending relocation somewhere else in the county. Uh, like many people, I don't think monuments should be destroyed, but uh, they shouldn't be in front of the courthouse. So if you have a crane and want to make some, some cash, call the Pitt County manager, uh, and, and I'm sure they'll take your bid. So that's what's going on here. What's going on next week here is our last show of the season. We, we've strung it out an extra week this year because of all the changes going on. So the final show of the academic year 2019-2020 uh, will be Kenneth R. Rutherford. He's an internationally known expert in contemporary mine warfare, and he has written the first book that I'm aware of uh, that focuses on landmines in the Civil War. So we'll be learning from him. I'm looking forward to that. And that'll wrap up our season for, uh, for the year. We'll come back in August with new shows, new guests. Uh, feel free to send me your suggestions anytime. As always, go to www.impedimentsofwar.org where Mark Gaffney keeps us updated on who's been on the show, who's going to be on the show. You can download the shows from there. You can also do the same on the Impediments of War Facebook page. So let's talk tonight uh, uh, about another infernal machine, not landmines, but uh, a submarine. I want to say the book uh, that we're discussing tonight is called In the Waves, My Quest to Solve the Mystery of a Civil War Submarine. Usually when I do this program, I will take a day or two off after the show, after Wednesday night, uh, and I'll start reading the next book on the weekend, uh, usually Saturday, and finish it by Tuesday, sometimes even Wednesday, uh, but always in time to assemble my notes, get ready for questions. This book was an exception to that. I picked it up uh, last Friday just to see what was in it, uh, just to read a page or two, having nothing else to do at the moment, and I could not put it down. I just kept reading it and reading it and reading it. Didn't finish it Friday, but kept reading it Saturday, Saturday. Finished it after midnight on Saturday. It's very rare that a book for the show grabs me in that way and gets me to just read it straight through without doing anything else. Uh, it's got everything. War, mystery, adventure, humor, science, romance, politics, medicine. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and, and before we even talk about it, we'll tell you listeners, uh, uh, you will enjoy it too. But let's talk, uh, but 
that makes me all the more curious to learn more about it. Let's bring in uh, our guest tonight, the author of the book, Dr. Rachel Lance, author of In the Waves, My Quest to Solve the Mystery of a Civil War Submarine. Dr. Lance, are you there? I'm here. I'm very sorry to hear I kept you up so late at night. Well, it was it was a pleasure. I, I, as I said, <laughs> I very much enjoyed it. Um, I'm glad the, to hear that. Uh, the the it, it, I guess we give away the ending by uh, your title, Doctor Lance, means you did in fact get the PhD uh, from this project. But uh, uh, before doing it, actually, can I call you Rachel? Is that uh, yes? Okay? Uh, please do. Uh, I, I prefer that actually. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and and please call me Jerry. It will keep us uh, both going at the same level. It says on the back cover, the inside flap. You're uh, originally from the Detroit area. Uh, as, as I am. I'm curious, where, where in the metro Detroit area uh, are you from? I grew up in Troy, around 16 miles, since you're another suburban Detroiter. Yes, I, I, I was actually born in Detroit and grew up in Highland Park, which is south of Six Mile, like way, way in the ah. city. Uh, but I went to high school in uh, Gross Point, which is closer to uh, Vernier, the extension of Eight Mile. So uh, if you're yeah. not from the Detroit area, you're not following where we are, but I, I know exactly where 16 Mile is and 15. Yeah. Well, thankfully, there's so, a little bit of basic math, so we were about eight you, miles apart. <laughs> <laughs> you can track it that way. Wow. Um, and uh, now you are you're calling in from from Durham, North Carolina, where where Duke University is located. Uh, but again, the uh, the book flap says your your day job is with the United States Navy. Is that correct? It was at the time that I was doing this project. Since then, I've left that position, and I'm now actually faculty at Duke. But that only occurred a few months ago, so it didn't quite make the book jacket. Wow. Well, congratulations on that. That's, uh, Thank you. That's a uh, wonderful thing. You were previously with the, the Surface Warfare Center? Yes. I was working as a civilian engineer. So I was there as a normal employee. I didn't wear a uniform, but I was working directly on the military base um, with the active duty service men and women. And so what I was doing there was looking at underwater breathing systems, which fits into my personal passion of scuba diving and also my nerd passion of the human lungs and how we breathe and how respiratory physiology just keeps us moving day to day. So uh, your your degree is in biomedical engineering. I, I guess a good place to start is what what exactly is biomedical engineering? Oh, nobody knows. Um, <laughs> it's one of the great mysteries. <laughs> Basically, biomedical engineering is extremely broad, and it's a term that we use for any type of engineering that relates to the human body. So I have colleagues in the field who do anything down to subcellular size stuff, to people like myself who don't like microscopes. Um, and I, what I do particularly is I look at patterns of injury and trauma. The one that I like to study the most is underwater explosions. And that, of course, ties in because of my previous work looking at underwater respiration and underwater physiology, knowing how the human beings survive under the surface of the ocean. And for this project, I was able to look at how we respond to explosions that are occurring under the surface of the ocean. So you really have a unique group of skills that, that apply directly to this story of, of the, the Hunley in terms of studying uh, blast trauma to to people and underwater uh, blasts in particular, also breathing un- underwater. Uh, did you 
when you started your program, did you think uh, the Hunley would be a great topic? How did you come by that specific topic? No, I'm almost ashamed to admit this now, but I'd never heard of it before. <laughs> it was not a uh. typical part of your Metro Detroit education. So um, the the fact that I seem to have this background that just happened to be custom built for looking at the Hunley was a 100% fluke. And it turned out to be an extremely happy accident. But the project idea was actually initially supposed to be just like a little interesting side adventure. My thesis advisor, his name is Dale Bass, he kind of just wandered into my office one day and he had this way of starting a conversation in the middle of it. So he sort of sat down and he just looks at me and goes, what about the Hunley? I, of course, didn't know what that meant, but as a graduate student, you kind of have to just yes, say yes to everything. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. I, of course I can work on the Hunley. Absolutely. I'll have it done by Tuesday. Um, and that tends to be kind of the default response. So after he left, I started frantically Googling, and I looked at this boat, and I looked at this summary of what happened to it in 1864 when it set off this massive black powder charge, and no one was ever heard from again. And this mystery just sucks you in from there. Well, that, that is, uh, first of all, that's absolutely right. When when the professor asks you, uh, asks a grad student a question, uh, yeah, I can handle that is, is the correct answer. Um, exactly. We don't have a doctoral program in, in history here uh, at ECU, but we do have uh, master's students, and they practice saying, yes, I can do that. Uh, <laughs> well, most people listening to this show have heard of the Hunley, and they have a, a, a rough idea of what happened. But what we'll do now, we'll take a short break, and we come back. Uh, I'll ask you for the uh, the, the elevator uh, sketch, the thumbnail sketch uh, story of the Hunley itself, and then we'll talk about uh, the mystery and, and how you got into it. We'll come back in just a few moments and talk more with our guest tonight, Rachel Lance, author of In the Waves, My Quest to Solve the Mystery of a Civil War Submarine. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Rachel Lance, author of In the Waves, My Quest to Solve the Mystery of a Civil War Submarine. The submarine, of course, is the Confederate submarine Hunley. So uh, what? give us the, uh, uh, the quick sketch of the, the Hunley story, if you would. All right. Well, the Henley story actually began right at the start of the Civil War. It's April 1861. The South has just declared their intentions to secede. And immediately, engineers and sailors around the southern states decide that they want to find a way to chip in. Not only is this obviously going to be a war that requires a lot of resources, but they also don't have a Navy to speak of. And so the people who built the Henley, there are three of them who are mainly uh, attributed with this accomplishment, they were privateers. And so they were out to not only defend the Confederacy, but also to make a bounty while they were at it. So we have a couple failed prototypes. I won't get into that in too much depth because you said elevator pitch, but we'll fast forward <laughs> to February 17th, 1864. At this point, they've still yet to be successful with any of their submarine attempts. There have been a couple sinkings, including the loss of Horace Henley himself, who died inside the vessel trying feebly to escape. And in that night on February they decide that it's finally time to take their submarine out and try to sink one of the Union ships. So they're in Charleston, South Carolina. It's the last major port city that's still standing. Sherman is closing in from the sides on the land, and the people are starving because the Union ships have had this blockade. At the beginning of the war, it had kind of debatable efficacy, but now there's really only one port left, and also it's where the war started. So they make no no um, mediation in their attempts to really just crumble Charleston to its knees. And we know this because of the documentation. And the crew of the Hunley decides one night when the ocean is finally calm enough that it's time. They aim for the USS Housatonic, which is about four miles offshore, just floating at anchor. And this is the closest vessel to land, which is important because the Hunley, about 40 feet long, hammered together by hand out of repurposed pieces of iron from a boiler of a steamship, is actually cranked by hand. So there's one officer in front, uh, Lieutenant George Dixon. He's able to steer and control the diving. And then the other seven men are all positioned along handles at a crank. And this crank is how they turn the propeller. They crank their submarine this four miles after the Housatonic. The crew of the Housatonic sees it coming, but far too late to actually do anything about it. They can't get their artillery train downward. They aren't able to fire at it with anything but handguns and rifles. And the Hunley hits the side of the Housatonic with their torpedo. Now, obviously, your audience is probably a little, a little bit more informed. They already know that a torpedo in 1864 is not like a torpedo in 2020. Uh, this is a stationary bomb, and it has a pressure trigger. So the whole point is to kind of like an evil submarine unicorn, just jab the side of this propeller or this torpedo against the hull of the Housatonic, and the bomb goes off. The Housatonic, which is only in 30 feet of water, so sinks in less than five minutes, and the Hunley is never heard from again. 
until 1995 when the famous author Clive Cussler announces to the media that he has found it, finally. It's drifted out to sea, which is why no one had found it yet. And as they bring it up and they start to excavate out the inside silt and mud and dead little sea things that have crawled in there, they begin to map the bones. And they notice that not only is this crew still inside, they don't have any signs of skeletal injury, and they didn't try to escape the boat at all. So they all seem to have just died seated at their stations peacefully. So there certainly is a mystery. Um, pedantic professor that I am, I will point out, Wilmington, North Carolina, was still an open blockade-running port uh, until February 1865. Ooh. So Charleston was not actually oh, no, the last open port. Uh, that's not pedantic. I love a Civil War fun fact. <laughs> but the the uh, uh, the symbolism of Charleston, uh, as you say, the the place where the rebellion started was was not lost on anybody, and it was a critical place, both symbolically and economically, for both sides. So the Hunley strikes this blow; it, it launches this this first uh, successful underwater attack, uh, and then it, we fast forward to the 1990s, and we find. The the hull of the submarine. Let me ask a question about that. The the project to recover the submarine uh, is it is this a U.S. Navy project? Is this a privately funded project? Who who owns the Hunley? And and I want to say here at East Carolina we have the, uh, the Maritime Studies Program, which trains underwater archaeologists. One of the few such programs in the country, and. Uh, there was a lot of controversy here about uh, Blackbeard's ship, the uh, 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 and, and whether the the wreck that was found was actually the the ship that had belonged to Blackbeard, or whether it was someone else's, uh, whether treasure hunters would get it, whether the state of North Carolina would would own it, and so on. So I, I I've been hearing a lot about shipwrecks and who owns them, and I'm curious about the Hunley. How did that? Uh, who who took charge of it once it was found? That was actually a rather clever trick that Kessler and that associated research team pulled was they pinpointed it. They took video to prove, yes, this is exactly what we found. It's unquestionable. And then they refused to tell anyone where it was until the lawyers had finished fighting. So uh. they were like, once we see a contract written, everyone signed it, that agrees that this is where it goes, here's how it's going to be preserved for the sake of the nation, and then we will tell you where it is. So what that did was that really motivated all of the different warring factions to come to an agreement quickly so that they could get started on the conservation plan. And so what ended up happening was it's in federal waters, so it's just outside the state line or state border of where the, the state could have had a possible claim on it, and it was also considered the spoils of war. So it is federally owned. Initially, it was um, the GSA, which I believe is General Services Administration. I would fact check myself on that. Mm -hmm. But the GSA very quickly handed it over to the U.S. Navy. And then the administration of the artifact was um, being handled by the Naval History and Heritage Command. But the agreement for the boat, their contractual agreement, is the Navy gets to retain ownership, but the state of South Carolina gets to have it in perpetuity, and they get full control and authority over how it is displayed. So, 
so, and they in turn uh, created a group, or, or a group was created called the Friends of the Hunley. Who are the Friends of the Hunley? So the first group that was created was the Hunley Commission, and this gets a little complicated, but the Hunley Commission was a part of the state legislature of South Carolina, and it still is. It's an active group. The Friends of the Hunley, I'm actually not 100% sure what the legal term is for their relationship, but Mm -hmm. they are the public face of the kind of umbrella groups within the Hunley Commission. They do a lot of the fundraising. They, You'll see their logo and name on the museum, and so they kind of try to do the publicity aspects of it. Uh, but they rent uh, an office for a dollar in the Clemson University building that houses the Conservation Center. So there's obviously clearly some kind of very tight relationship there, but technically it's a nonprofit that's separate. It, it, and again, this, this rang a bell. The, the the Queen Anne's Revenge, the Blackbeard ship, is housed in a, or the, the the pieces of it are housed in a lab on ECU's campus, but they're owned. But the, it's not part of East Carolina University. It's part of the state underwater archaeology branch in the Department of Cultural and Natural Resources. And so again, you have all these complex threads going on about who owns, uh, and who controls, and who displays, and who conserves uh, with a shipwreck. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, we got the same thing with the Hunley. Well, I'm I'm gonna I'm, I'm going not in a, a linear engineering style fashion here with my questions. <laughs> uh, and listeners, be assured the book does make sense in the order it goes in. But l- let's jump back now. There you are in your office. Your uh, graduate advisor said, "Well, you know, what about the Hunley?" And you say, "Sure, I can do that." Uh, you learn what it is. Now. Your your specialty is is blast trauma, so it must have occurred to you they were right near a big blast. Is that what what killed them? It seems to me a, a very simple problem. You, you figure out how big the blast was. You know how big the the explosive was. Figure out how it moves through the water. Figure out how much damage it does. You can be done by Tuesday. Um, right, right. <laughs> obviously, it doesn't work that way. Right. Uh, so let me start at the um, back unfortunately, end. Unfortunately, yeah, with science, we need a little bit more evidence than that. Um, and the evidence is always the tricky part. <laughs> well, let me ask, let's start with the back end of the question. Uh, assuming a pressure wave goes from the explosion into the, the hull of the Hunley, how does a pressure wave affect human beings? It's nothing like the movies have been telling us for years. So that, I think, was the key to this problem, is when people think of blast trauma, I think it's very obvious, like, hey, these guys were less than 16 feet away from a rather large explosion. Perhaps that could contribute to their deaths. But I think what's thrown people off for so long is that blast trauma in real life typically doesn't look anything like it does in cinema and media. So what actually happens is you can have a combination of different things, but you can also just have one of them. So one of the obvious things that can happen is shrapnel. Um, That obviously wasn't a concern in this case because they're inside the hull of the submarine. But one of the other injury types is what we call primary blast injury, which is the injury from just the pressure of the explosion itself. And that tends to impact the lungs first. So the lungs are by far the easiest to injure, which is how I got into that field because I'm mm-hmm. big lung nerd, love respiration, and blast trauma is an easy transition for that. And they tend to 
kind of rupture is the word I often use. So you end up with a lot of bleeding. And obviously when your lungs are filled with any kind of fluid, including blood, that doesn't necessarily make it easy to breathe. And that can, that can be um, a pretty common cause of death. And so you see that in reports from basically every combat since the invention of high explosives, which was really the first major one was World War I, um, where you see people who have kind of just fallen over. And on autopsy, they might be found with just lungs full of blood. Or if there's no autopsy, it can look like literally nothing happened. They just fell over dead. This image that you see in the movies of the person being just like thrown across the room and tossed everywhere that's physically possible. Like a large enough bomb can, can do anything pretty much. But if that's occurring, that person is so far over the fatal range that they are not getting up and running off on another action hero mission. The image, one of the really haunting images you provide in the book is the description of uh, the casualties in bomb shelters during the Second World War where uh, the rescuers later go in and find people sitting, dozens of people sitting in an orderly fashion, uh, all dead, all unmarked, uh, killed by by the pressure wave. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's really a horrifying thought, I guess. It's a, it's a horrifying thought. And it's, um, it's actually a quote by, I believe, Kurt Vonnegut. And mm-hmm. it, it's one that's always stayed with me since I read it. He provided that quote where he described that in just an interview. And, when you read his words about how his job was to go into these bomb shelters and pull the bodies out because otherwise the cities were starting to smell like they were starting to smell like rotting, rotting people, not to get too graphic, but like that's what he's describing. And for me, it really informed a lot more about what I'd read from him previously. Like, especially you read Slaughterhouse Five and knowing that he's had these experiences from World War II, all of that other stuff starts to make a lot more sense. So we've got the possibility that if you have a big enough pressure wave, it can kill people instantaneously almost so that if they're sitting at their crank stations in the Hunley, uh, the fact that all their bones are found in their seats, uh, the, the captain still has one leg crossed over the other. They haven't moved. They haven't started the pumps. They haven't done anything. Um, so we know pressure can do this. Then the next question is, well, how much pressure do you need? Uh, could you just like look at how big the, the black powder charge was and say, oh, look it up in a book. X number of pounds equals X pressure. Uh, wouldn't that be a simple task? To a degree, yes. So you can do that a little bit, but black powder is kind of a monster. Um, Uh. I will be so happy if I never have to work (laughs) with black powder again. (laughs) Um, Like a lot of other explosives like TNT or C4 are very, very predictable. And yes, you can. You can just pull out books. There are thousands of them on both of those and do some math and you don't have to get your hands muddy. Um, But black powder is an obsolete explosive. It's not really used anymore. And on top of it, even if you go through the research, there is a lot of literature about it. It's all over the place. So it depends on the humidity the day it was made. It depends on how finely it's been ground or like how long it was milled for it. There are so many variables involved. And then on top of it, with this particular question, we were also dealing with a submarine hull. 
So even though there are, there are textbooks about explosives, there's no textbook about explosives interacting with a homemade submarine. Um, so that was one question that I really had to address experimentally because there was nothing available about that part. So this gets us to the, the actual experimental design for your, your thesis project. Now you've, you've got this idea that enough pressure will kill. You've got an idea how big the bomb is, but you can't just, just look it up. As you say, there's no, there, there's no book for that, for, for black powder strength or for submarine hull resistance. Uh, so how, how, did, how do you experiment? Uh, what what Ooh, can you do? It was very um, – well, explosives problems to a degree can be scaled. And so this is actually a very common experimental tactic. If you have something that's really complicated or something that's new and you can't just do a simple equation about it, you can scale it down and make a little model. And obviously there's a size limit to how small you can go. Um, but for me, I was able to create a one-sixth scale model of the Hunley. And I had help from a local artist here in Durham. The model is actually sitting right next to me right now in my home library. It's the CSS Tiny because sometimes at 3 o'clock in the morning in graduate school, certain things sound really funny to you. Um, <laughs> and I was able to take that six-and-a-half-foot model and put it in a pond, um, which was because of the generosity of a local tobacco farmer who is willing to let me blow things up in his pond. And working with a, an ATF explosives expert, um, we set off small black powder charges. And we were able to take measurements both in the water and inside the hull of the submarine and look at what was happening. Well, this this is uh, – th- that's a short and elegant description of a process that took uh, a good deal longer and, and uh, was quite <laughs> suspenseful, actually, reading the book. We're going to take another short okay. break. We'll come back. We'll talk more. Uh, with our guest tonight, Rachel Lance, author of In the Waves, My Quest to Solve the Mystery of a Civil War Submarine. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Rachel Lance, author of In the Waves, My Quest to Solve the Mystery of a Civil War Submarine. We've been talking about the fate of the crew of the Confederate submarine Hunley, who um, were never seen alive again after they went off on their fateful mission to sink the USS Housatonic. Uh, the... As we learned, the submarine itself has been recovered. The bodies or the remains of the bodies were found uh, in place in the submarine. No no panicked effort to get out. Uh, and the question that, uh, uh, Rachel, that you studied was whether blast, primary blast effect, was what uh, killed the members of the crew. So to study this, you ended up building a, a scale model of the submarine, putting it in a pond, and setting off scale black powder charges nearby and measuring this. Uh, one of the things that struck me about your account was how when you were initially looking for data on the, the Hunley to build the model, the the others who are already studying this, the researchers and archaeologists at Clemson uh, and the, the friends of the Hunley, were not necessarily forthcoming or, or welcoming to your research efforts, which I, in, in the history world, that's relatively uncommon. Most experience I have is if someone's studying the same topic, uh, it's not a zero-sum game. Like, yeah, sure, here's my research. What have you got? Uh, because we're each going to write our own book anyway. Uh, but you, 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 you got some resistance. Yeah, I did. That was that was unexpected to me, especially because I was coming from a completely different angle. We were coming from this lab that specialized in injury biomechanics and injury trauma, and I, I was a little bit perplexed by that at first as well. But as I learned more, um, it seemed like a lot of it was based in an attempt to kind of have control over the public image of the submarine. So you opened the episode with a mention of Confederate statues and Confederate monuments, yes. which are have obviously been an issue and a social issue for decades, but have more recently within the last few weeks become even more prominent in the news. And mm-hmm. there's documentation from this group and from the Hunley Commission from when they were first founded in the 90s that they had a lot of concerns over the way that this submarine would be presented to the public. Mm. So one of the things that was really important to me as I was writing this book was that I obviously I, I can't you can't take any one topic of the Civil War and write one book that's a complete and definitive history, right? It would be eight million right. pages. But um I tried very hard to kind of pull in some of the facts and information that I uncovered as I was going through primary source records and archival records at the National Archives that I hadn't seen published before from publications from this group. And some of them, like, for example, there's a story in Chapter 3 where it seems like there's some strong supporting historical documents that suggest that Horace Hunley and the early inventors forced 
slaves to die in one of the early prototypes. Um, that's not a story that you will necessarily read about in in other books that are published by the official groups holding holding the submarine. Well, it, it, you know, Civil War history is contentious, and it, it does one does get the sense that the Friends of the Hunley want uh, a, a certain presentation. And it can vary. I mean, sometimes it can be it can have political overtones whenever slavery is involved. Certainly it does. Um, and then it can also have just sort of proprietary overtones. Uh, the mystery mm-hmm. of what happened to the, the Hunley crew, for example, uh, it, it, it would seem obvious. Well, you know, they drowned, a bomb went off nearby, it swamped their submarine or blasted them or something. It doesn't seem like it would be too controversial. Uh, but you point out that for many years, and even now, there are those who argue they weren't killed immediately uh, because they were able to signal the shore after after setting off the bomb. They set off. They, they were able to signal that they had been successful. Uh, what's the evidence for that? The blue, the blue light, the fabled blue light, was probably one of my favorite things to research. Um, uh-huh. So the, the the original story is that the Hunley was going to send a signal back to shore. They were going to light a blue light to say that they were successful. And Mm -hmm. now blue light is a chemical mixture. It's actually white, not blue. Um, But there are two different accounts that say that a blue light was seen on the water at around the right time. So obviously, for my theory to hold water, they can't have been alive and signaling back to shore. It just doesn't add up, right? Mm -hmm. So as I start investigating these two accounts, what you notice, if you go back to the original wording, they don't actually say they saw the blue light from the Hunley. Um, one of them was watching from Battery Marshall, and he says that he saw the signal that the submarine wanted a, a fire lit as a signal for their return. Now, they also passed by him on their way out to shore. So if you look at the distance where they were four miles away, and we know about how much light these blue light chemical mixtures produce, there are very, very small chance that he would have actually been able to see a signal from that distance. And so you look at the actual phrasing, and it makes me wonder, is that he could have meant as they left. As they left, they said, yes, we want a signal for our return, which to me Uh makes a lot more sense as an explanation for that account. Uh, the second account was a man named Robert F. Fleming, and his story is so fascinating because he's the lookout that first spotted the Hunley. So he's kind of on the starboard end of the bow of the ship of the Housatonic, and he sees a submarine coming, and he's actually an African-American volunteer from Massachusetts. So he reports it to his commanding officer, and the commanding officer argues with him. He says, no, Fleming, that's, it's just a log. But anyway, so Fleming, after the ship has been sunk, because he was right, it was not a log, um, he says that he looks back and he's clinging to the rigging at this point. So he's clinging to the rigging for survival so he doesn't die of hypothermia in the February waters of the Atlantic. And he says he saw blue light on the water. And really, the simple the sentence is as simple as that. He doesn't elaborate. He doesn't say it was coming from a submarine. So I started picking around, which for me involves camping out in the manuscripts room of the Library of Congress, one of my favorite places, and I found the records from the captain of the ship, Kenan Daigua. 
Now, this was the Housatonic's nearest neighbor on February 17th and in the blockade. So they were also the ship that was coming to rescue them. And the captain of this ship has left behind so many records of how much it is his pet peeve when people do not signal properly. And the proper signal for a small boat approaching a large boat is a blue light on the water. So Fleming, again, we have this issue where all we have is a historical record. He's not very specific. He doesn't say it's coming from a submarine. He doesn't say exactly when he's seeing it. To me, I think he's reporting the approach of the rescue dinghies. So, yeah, so that, it, was, it, that was part of the investigation. Obviously, we can't go back and interview them all in greater detail, which would be really nice. But um, it, It's a great... The, uh, it, it is a great piece of historical detective work, and uh, if nothing else, I got my money's worth learning that a blue light is just a chemical. It's not actually blue. It's a, it's a white light, so I, I learned something right there. The, uh, the theory, then, uh, would, be a, would be wrong if, if the crew had survived to set up the blue light, but your experiments in the, the farmer's pond – uh, after many trials and errors to get the gauges to, work, to make everything work out, uh, you conclude, uh, and, and here's a spoiler alert, but I've, listeners, you'll enjoy the book even as we talk about the ending. Um, but you can stop listening now if you want to get the book and read it yourself. Uh, you end up determining that there was, in fact, enough pressure, that there likely could have been enough pressure uh, transmitted into the boat to have achieved exactly this, this primary blast trauma. Uh, yeah. Is that a fair summary? That is a great summary. And I think it's also important to say that with science, you can never say 100% like, yes, I've conclusively proved it. So yes. I don't like to say that. I like to say that the data support the theory. But some an interesting fun fact um, that didn't make it into the book, if you don't mind me taking a minute. No, please. Is yeah, in the book, I kind of end it with the probabilities. So the probabilities that they got hurt or the probabilities that they got killed from the blast itself. And they're never 100% um, unless you're next to a nuclear weapon, which didn't happen. But um, so there are good chances that they got hurt and killed. But something that's never been released before is that the guy at the number one crane position, Arnold Becker, there's some speculation that he was actually trying to crawl out. So if you look at the positions of his arms and the way that they were found, it kind of looks like he might be trying to get to the exit. And why that's interesting is I finally picked up on that because as I was looking for more diagrams of the crew's bones, I realized they were all cropped. They were all cropped at the number two guy. And so I started having to go hunting further because the friends only had never released a full diagram of all eight of the crew mm. members. And But in one video for National Geographic, they were spinning the model around on the screen. And you can kind of take it and zoom in and zoom in and zoom in and look and see what's going on. And so to me, this is obviously really historically interesting, but also as a blast trauma specialist, there's nothing that makes you crawl for the exit like a good dose of blast lung. So I think this, this is, obviously you never want to hear that a horror human being has died in a more painful manner, but it's definitely more supportive of the theory. 
The uh, the Friends of the Hunley at their display in Charleston have a uh, uh, a panel, and they actually they have this online. You can go to the uh, uh, the Friends of the Hunley website, and they ask visitors, "What do you think uh, resulted in the loss of the Hunley? Was it the torpedo explosion?" Uh, was it somehow trapped by the tides, which I'm not sure how I understand that? Was it a collision at sea? Uh, it doesn't say with what. Was it a lucky shot from the Housatonic? And the uh, the voting, the last time I looked at it, 41% favored the torpedo explosion theory, which uh, is as close to the blast theory as they, they openly get. Uh, but it suggests maybe they're coming around to recognizing that you have, in fact, figured out what happened to the crew members. Maybe. I mean, when were you down there? So. <laughs> no, I, I've not been there physically. This is just from the website. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, you said that. I misunderstood. I, um, yeah, no, yeah, you can, no you, maybe. I, I don't really know. I, as a person, yes, I think there's a very natural urge to want people to agree with us. But as a scientist, I'm kind of used to generating data and then sending it off into the ether for people to judge on their own. Um, so, you know, I was really excited to be able to write this book and tell this aspect of science in a way that hopefully people find understandable and enjoyable. Um, but what they decide to believe at the end of the day is is going to be up to them. Um, my dad likes to say, some people still think the earth is flat. So, you know, you're never going to convince everyone. True. You can you can have an election on it, and it's not going to change the actual outcome. Um, yeah. We just have a, a, a very short time left, uh, but I do. What was your favorite moment in this whole project? Gosh, um, I, I think people want me to say the explosions, <laughs> but uh. <laughs> you have to understand those tests were very difficult. I had to start by building a power supply because it was in the middle of nowhere. Um, I think what I really loved was actually visiting one of the black powder, um, black powder manufacturing sites. So the Hagley Museum in Delaware is the site of the former DuPont family black powder mill. That's actually how they originally made their fortune. And that was my first time seeing like a real black powder mill. They have a lot of the old buildings still standing and these massive, massive like steel wheels, iron wheels that used to grind the stuff. And the whole thing is built and assuming it will blow up. Um, I thought that was, yeah, like they're like, well, this is definitely going to blow up at some point. So how do we kill the least number of workers? Um, I thought that was, that was particularly fascinating to me. Wow. Well, that, that there's always new places to visit in the civil war world. I have to put that on my list now. Well, unfortunately yeah, we are it. out of time. We, we've we've run out of time, always faster than, than I expect or wish. Uh, but listeners, you will, I predict, thoroughly enjoy In the Waves, my quest to solve the mystery of a Civil War submarine. Uh, if you are like me, you will learn stuff uh, and, and have a good time reading it as well. Uh, the author was our guest tonight, Dr. Rachel Lance. Rachel, thank you so much for being on Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you much for having me and again i'm really glad to hear you enjoyed the book and listeners as always thank you for listening to civil war talk radio thank you for embarking on a part of american history this week civil war talk radio with jerry prokopovich can be heard live every wednesday at 4 p.m pacific time 7 p.m eastern time on the voice america variety channel have a good week.